I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to episode 58 of The Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. A thank you on behalf of Pandora who really wanted the mailbag to stick in the Hilo common parlance and I'm now receiving email after email in the Hilo's inbox saying this is one for the mailbag. Thanks very much everyone for supporting me on that. <laughs> so in the Blue Peter mailbag this week... We received a message from the Joe Cox Foundation. Joe's sister Kim has been leading on some amazing work on combating loneliness on behalf of the foundation, uh, which we feel very passionately about, so we wanted to flag it up. The foundation follows Joe's philosophy that closer communities where you know your neighbours and have strong local connections are best equipped to tackle loneliness. Over the weekend of the 22nd to the 24th of June, which would have been Joe's 44th birthday, the foundation are running the great get-together for the second year running. It's a nationwide celebration of communities inspired by Joe's maiden speech, quote, we have more in common than things that divide us. Thousands of events are being planned up and down the country and millions are expected to take part. All events bring communities together to have fun, from dog walks in Bristol to picnics in the grounds of stately homes in Yorkshire. As I said, it's a cause Pandora and I feel very passionately about. And to find out more, you can visit www.greatgettogether.org And on the subject of loneliness, we received a tweet from the Minister for Loneliness, Tracy Crouch, who said a friend introduced her to the Hilo and she's now an avid listener. Both Pandra and I were so chuffed about this as we talked about uh, the MP's appointment to the role in an episode earlier this year. Also, Tracy is working very closely with the Joe Cox Foundation to help combat the loneliness epidemic in this country. I was a bit starstruck. I was thrilled, mm. especially when she said, I don't know how I lived without it. Yeah. It's that little ego boost, Tracy. Very appreciated. <laughs> and I absolutely agree that closer communities are best equipped to tackle loneliness. Do you know what? I'd be interested to see how the breakdown of loneliness differs across kind of cities like London which are jam-packed but not with a close community with much more kind of diasporic Mm, (laughs) communities mm. where you might not be physically that close but you're probably mentally closer aren't you I bet it's higher in cities like London actually I think since I moved in on my own which is a year ago this month I made a real effort because I was a little bit nervous about living in my first flat on my own I made a real effort with the two women who live in two flats above me to connect with them and it makes such a difference we have a whatsapp group and we're always kind of chatting and we're always you know checking in on each other and checking because we're three single women above each other and it does make a massive difference I think to your uh, not just your sense of safety but just kind of like your sense of well-being really it's also a great synopsis for a novel get cracking <laughs> it is what it? lives are they leading on these it's, three different floors it's a little bit Ian McEwen also in the mailbag this week a Guardian piece about Raheem Sterling by Maurice McLeod recommended by a listener Emma which looked at the furore surrounding the young football player and his new gun tattoo from an interesting angle that Dolly and I didn't when we briefly discussed last week which is that as a successful young black man Raheem is ripe for criticism and it doesn't really matter much what that criticism is also who is Piers Morgan say that Raheem's explanation of his tattoo which is incidentally for those that didn't listen last week that his father very sadly died from a uh, gun crime when Raheem was two years old so it is both in honour of his father and a reminder to never become you know entangled in that world anyway so Piers Morgan said that his explanation wasn't good enough which is disgustingly patronising anyway Morris writes the young player is rarely out of the newspapers for some perceived misdemeanour or other 
He was called greedy for asking to be paid relative to his skills while at Liverpool. He was called obscene for spending too much money when he did up his mum's house, buying her a fancy sink. Then he was criticised for being too frugal when he shopped at Primark, Poundland, Greggs or whenever he flies on a budget airline. When these criticisms are viewed altogether, the pattern seems clear. Raheem has money now and some parts of the media don't like how he spends it. Almost every story about him references his birth in Jamaica, his humble upbringing in northwest London and his relatively new wealth, they are thinly veiled attacks on all confident, working class and yes, black young men who appear not to know their place. And we definitely received some emails this week actually which, which referenced the fact that Raheem isn't just a young man in the spotlight, mm. he is a young black man. So that was a really interesting read that we recommended, thank you. Frames it in a new, really important and very relevant light. Yeah, I'm really glad that we were pointed in the direction of this article because obviously his ethnicity is a really important part of this particular conversation. Would there have been as much focus on his tattoo had he been a white player? Definitely not. The problem in this country is, as we know, blackness is still so linked culturally with criminality and poverty. And obviously, first and foremost, this has an effect on how black people are treated in day-to-day life but this of course will have an effect on how we scrutinize and discuss black people in the public eye well said lots of controversies this week firstly theresa may northern ireland and the dup to recap as i know it's actually quite confusing in this post repeal world the issue now for many is that abortion is still illegal in northern ireland it will no longer be illegal in the republic of ireland which is fantastic but it is still illegal in northern ireland it was initially reported that theresa may would not force a vote to repeal the ban supposedly because she relies on the dup to prop up her minority mm. government mm. but an emergency commons debate has revealed that she does personally back the end of the ban as does the Northern Irish Secretary Karen Bradley and the Equality Secretary Penny Mordaunt who tweeted with authority comes responsibility message from Northern Ireland Secretary today Northern Ireland should take responsibility message from the House of Commons if you don't we will the Supreme Court is actually ruling today Thursday on whether or not Northern Ireland's abortion law amounts to a violation of human rights Mm. so i'm sure there'll be an update on Mm. this even in the next few days and then there was jermaine greer at hay literary festival the australian feminist said that rape wasn't always violent and therefore shouldn't always end in a jail term I know it's a cliche, but I'm just so endlessly disappointed in Jermaine Greer at the moment. I saw that the journalist Alex Hemmingsley tweeted, I judge Hay for platforming her instead of no platforming her because putting her on a platform just seems cruel these days. I really don't think anyone wants to see her destroy the legacy she had 15 odd years ago or to hear her jumbly, jangly, whiffly, waffly, damaged seeming crap. Which I think I sort of agree with. It's hard because I also recognise the essential kind of foundational work that she did for modern feminism certainly how she formed my feminism and i don't think for that reason that the things that she says and does now should render her former writing and theory completely useless no neither do i i think we can still recognize the incredible work that she's done i don't know i have a few charitable theories on why i think she keeps saying this completely mad stuff which no doubt i'll go into at another point But also I am aware that I shouldn't allow my emotional attachment to her work or perhaps our collective nostalgia for what she stood for to overshadow the fact that she is saying quite damaging and potentially quite dangerous things on very widely watched, significant and respected platforms. I think that's a really interesting discussion to be had about how we legally draw parameters around rape and its nuances because there are nuances in crime. The the, the whole kind of black and white thing just doesn't wash even in in the case of sexual assault but Jermaine escalated that discussion in a pretty mad way claiming Mm. that the penis is not dangerous and no woman has ever died because of the penis which is patently untrue women have died Mm. from violent rapes the observer columnist Barbara Ellen called her a rad femme Katie Hopkins which made me laugh Um, she wrote why do younger women think older women say such things it matters because with feminism having a charged time there's an opportunity for generations of women to come together bringing different things to the table and that's a really good point I really loathe the idea that when women reach a certain age they become sort of irrelevant Mm. uh, irrelevant and mad and we should Mm. just sort of lock them away and say you were great 30 years ago but now have a little rest on the sofa and that's why this feels quite sad because Mm. what Germaine is doing is lends itself to that kind of commentary like oh she's just a woman in her 70s doesn't 
know what she's talking about. Women in their 70s can know what they're talking about in the same way that women in their 20s and 30s cannot know what they're talking about. It's not really anything to do with her age, although arguably her age, as she has got older, you know, perhaps what she's saying has become uh, less gripping and incisive. As you say, Dolly, we do need to be careful not to wipe out or forget all the good work she's done and that have been done by women whose work and thoughts have failed to move with the times. To be honest, the way to do that maybe is to perhaps stop giving her the platform. Like you, I'm not really sure, and I do find it all quite sad. Janice Turner writing about Roseanne Barr and Germaine Greer was interesting. She sort of conflated the two and said that once upon a time they were both really revolutionary. Roseanne Barr was a single mother. She'd had her child in her teens. She was the one that said, no, 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 I want this sitcom to look real. Put me in these cheap clothes. Don't Mm. make me this really shiny sitcom mother. And indeed, that's why she was loved for creating this working class Trumpian comedy. And now look, she's had her ABC sitcom cancelled. So she conflates the two and she says, maybe both women have an odd disinhibition which comes with age. We still consult Germaine like the feminist oracle, yet largely her ideas suck. Anyway, on to my favourite trailblazer, sitting so close to me that I can touch her. What have you been enjoying this week? That was a very nice introduction. I'm good at a segue. I loved Grace Dent's piece for The Guardian titled The Processed Food Debate is Delicious, MSG Sprinkled Class War. God, yes! She writes so evocatively about Mm. food. She was ES Magazine's restaurant critic for years and she's now The Guardian's restaurant critic. It's a really good piece of writing on uh, junk food, supposed junk food, and not just the kind of economic practicalities of it, but something that's far more interesting and complex, I think, which is the tradition and ritual of processed food, the taste and Mm. the texture of it, the memories of it, and the deliciousness of it. To quote her... As The Guardian's restaurant critic, I have Britain's fanciest fine dining restaurants at my disposal and a job that requires me, no contractually compels me, to eat locally sourced, ethically harvested organic crops. Yet I love a dinner of bird's eye potato waffle with spaghetti hoops and a Heinz salad cream smile on the side of the plate. Processed food is easy, tasty and restorative. It hits the spot. It celebrates, it pacifies, it is a light of hope at the end of another tricky day. It's what you reach for when you need to get the job of eating done. The thing that well-to-do food experts will never truly get is that for millions of people, life is very hard. And via a million tiny ingrained cerebral signifiers, processed food is very cheering. You know these brands and they know you. They are our friends, even if they may be trying to kill us. Don't tell me a Sunday night hungover Domino's delivery when you're dealing with the fear of another working week doesn't feel just like a cuddle. I'm from a land of garlic bread and circuses. I just think it's a really honest really thoughtful and um, intelligent way of looking at the processed food debate and I just loved it so that will be in the show notes. Well you know that I'm firmly in that camp. We've said before on the podcast that it is expensive to eat healthily not just fiscally but from a time point of view. A single mother of five doesn't have time to whip up nutritious meals Mm. in the evening and that's why I'm really glad to see all these policies coming in which are um, hopefully by taxing junk food, they'll be able to afford to make vegetables cheaper. Mm. You know, that kind of sliding, that sliding scale. Also, I agree, there is nothing like the crunch of fried chicken. Yeah, it's not like yeah. you lie in bed thinking evocatively of, you know, an avocado that you had age six. You think of fish finger sandwiches and, well, that's it, and that's, hula hoops on your fingers. Yeah, and yeah. nothing can ever take that away from you. Totally, and that's where, you know, I think that these think pieces or proposed legislation sometimes... Um, miss the sort of joy well miss the kind of complex mess of human bodies and emotion and physiology and 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 how we respond to food and what our memories are of food um and look i'm someone who's quite health conscious with said this isn't me saying like i think we should all be eating hula hoops and salad cream all the live long day i think we should eat whatever the fuck we want basically that's what i think and i have so much cake behind me (laughs) I have been writing a big essay on romance this last week and um, the kind of humiliating realities of what it is to be a diehard romantic. Um, And that will be published in the coming months via my friend's brilliant new writing scheme called The Pound Project. And as a writer who is constantly fretting about how we feel like we shouldn't be paying for content, I fully, fully back this idea. And the idea is that as the reader, you pay a pound for an essay or a short story. 
the more that you pay, the more that you get from the piece of writing. So you can get it as a little published booklet or you can go to an event with the writer. It's a really, really good this idea. This is awesome. It really, that, that really works to combat that difficult place yeah. we're in right now, which is that, as you say, people expect free content. And as a result, writers are paid less and less. Writers are paid less and less and writing gets shitter and shitter, to be completely frank, because, you know... Who's gonna, yeah, who's the value gonna of it is, yeah. still, is diluted and diluted, yeah. and it's very hard to be motivated as a writer if you're not getting paid. Yeah. So um, that's the poundproject.co.uk to find out more about that. Awesome. Um, anyway, research this piece, I revisited an article by Matthew Paris on being single, which I read a while back and I think about all the time. I think it's one of the best pieces I've ever read. Um, and in it, he talks about the fact that culturally we place too much value and an obsession on coupling up. Mm. And it has one of my favourite payoffs of all time. He says, For 50 years, I was single and happy and looking for nothing different. Now I have a partner. I love him very much and I'm almost blissfully happy with my new life. But I was blissfully happy with my old life too. It was a different life. No better or worse, just different. And I could have remained single all my days and still counted myself a winner. To love life as a couple doesn't mean I have to believe I rescued my partner from loneliness and he has no need to believe he rescued me. And then the piece ends. So here's to the free spirits. Here's to the untamed shrews. Here's to the bachelors gay. Here's to the old maids, the merry widows, the men about town and the party girls. Rejoice. Your stories don't qualify for Steve Wright's Sunday love songs. Switch off the radio and crack open a bottle of champagne. Oh, that's from the Dolly Alderton School of Law. I know. Isn't it wonderful? Yeah, that's lovely. The piece is so, so good. I will put it in the show notes, it, but it will be behind the paywall as it's a Times piece. But I hope that that taster of the piece proves that good writing is really worth paying for because it can change your outlook and philosophy on things. And certainly since I've been in a period of being very deliberately single, it's been a great source of inspiration to me, that piece. The pa- I was about to say the paywall or the piece? <laughs> the paywall. Um, I also am now on my third viewing of the film Nothing Like a Dame. Oh my god, I've never even heard of that, but you're such no, a dame. You do know because do I? I ran from a I was in a rush from a record a couple of weeks oh, ago. Oh yes, it's that because I sought out that jolly old film that you could only find playing in one cinema in London. I sought out a four o'clock showing in the Crouch End Picture House of it's a documentary made by Roger Michelle with Maggie Smith, Eileen Atkins, Joan Plowright, and Judy Dench. And me and my friends, Ed and Jack, went to go see it. Initially because we thought it would just be quite funny because the tagline of it was like four old actresses. Four, Are they all dames? They're all dames. Meet up in the English countryside to laugh and reminisce and have a glass of wine. And we were like... What, Dreamy. In what world though? I love the premise obviously but in what world does like culture desperately need this film? But it turns out it does. And it's incredibly funny and it's very moving. And as you know, I love old people and it's full of wit. And Who's your favourite? Oh my God, Maggie Smith. Because she's so grumpy. She's so grumpy and she's just absolutely the goal for me of what I want to end up. I knew I was in for a treat in the pre-titles. It just cuts to this actuality of Maggie Smith sitting, having her hair fussed with, I think, and she just says, God almighty, leave me alone! (laughs) To the person helping her. Um, But it's really... I'm disappointed in myself that I underestimated it, actually, because it's full of soul and wisdom and humour... Um, and How are you watching it three times? You're going back to the same cinema no, for a matinee No, it's now on BBC iPlayer because it was shown. But I would go back to the cinema. It was shown on BBC. I was going to say, that sounds, that sounds more BBC than it does The yeah. Bright Lights of Leicester Square. Yeah, it's great. And not only does it talk about theatre and acting, there's a lot about Laurence Olivier, um, which I just love because I'm an old lovey. But there's also a lot about raising children and marriage and working with husbands and friendship and getting work in later life. There are some very catty swipes at Judy Dench who they all think hog the sort of um, octogenarian roles from the rest of them. <laughs> I love Judy Dench. She's great. And actually the clip that I want to insert here is the a standout moment, I think, from the film where Judy Dench is talking about getting older and saying how much she hates being patronised. When I was stung on the bum by a hornet oh, yes. last year. And that awful... Yes, and, I, and, and somebody, a paramedic, walked into the room, um, who was about 17, and he said, what's our name? <laughs> oh! So I said, um... <clears throat> Judy, my name's Judy. And he said, and have we got a carer? And I, I blew my top. <laughs> 
I mean, I will tell you what I said. You can't, Bobby. I said, you fuck off. I said, I've just done eight weeks in the winter's tale at the Garrett Theatre. And I dread to ask you, Pandora, what you've been up to this week, because I feel like you floated solo to an island far away. Oh, Love Island is back. I didn't float solo, Dolly. You're the one left here solo. Everyone else has gone off on their lilos, and you're sitting here wondering where everyone's gone. More people applied to be on Love Island this year than they did to attend Oxbridge. ITV received 85,000 applicants this year. The favourite to win is Danny Dyer, daughter of Danny Dyer. Why did they call her Danny? Well, I mean, why why was she like that? I'm sorry. Extraordinary. But it is spelt differently, which is crucial, I think, because you really hear that it's spelt differently when you say it out loud. Anyway, 2.9 million viewers tuned in, and your best mate and I are already having earnest chats about the morale of the various contestants. I know. She told me. I think that there's going to be this big bond formed between you and India over your Love Island obsession. It took. So India had not watched it before, and I told her to. And she sent me a message saying, oh my God, is this on every night? I was like, every night or summer. Yeah, she was like, I think I'm going to be cancelling a lot of plans. It is the most addictive thing I've ever watched. Yeah, she said that. She said, But also, yeah. Dolly, you'd love it. It's incredibly human and says a lot about society. And I'm just excited about all the next Boohoo Man endorsements. Do you know who's weirdly kind of attacked it in a, in a sort of pseudo-feminist way? Giles Corrin. What's his criticism? Because actually, he it's sexist and backwards. No, you and... see that. No, you see that is that. That's God. That's so lazy. Did he just have nothing to really write about that that week? He's, actually, he's on a proper mission about. Well, it. Well, because I would sense. actually say it is the opposite. Yes, the girls come in in bikinis and high heels with sort of artfully teased hair and eyelash hair dryers. Danny Dyer has a ha- eyelash hair dryer, <laughs> but the boys are fake tanned and toned and wearing tiny trunks and doing their hair and the the gratuitous lingering shots are as much on them as on the girls mm. they are equally objectified everyone's judged on looks of course they are they look they walk into a villa and they have to be chosen straight away there is 100% and I'd say they're very careful about this no more dwelling on the women's physicality any more than the men it's mm. not like they got a bunch of stupid bimbos and some really clever men there are equal parts clever mm. girls and boys mm. and equal parts himbos and bimbos mm. also the man that India and I are a bit upset about is a doctor who is losing morale because none of the girls find him sexy and he now doesn't know how to make himself feel sexy it's not a girl sitting in the corner whilst all the boys you know um, mm. pick them up and put them down if anything the girls I've noticed this last year and I'm definitely noticing this year the girls are in control so, so I it's, completely it's sort disagree. of carefully produced it's very carefully mm. produced. You as a producer would definitely think it's carefully produced. Mm. Um, and also, the women are not objectified and sexualized to a man's game at all. They're all wearing swimwear. They're all on an island. It's I, I see very much equal play. Mm. And if people want to write hot takes about it being, you know, anti-feminist, sure. But I don't think you'd find many feminists like me who are watching it to find it offensive certainly not in the way that i have found the only wears essex offensive Mm. or other reality Mm. shows Mm. actually also this week i loved robin wilder writing for grazia about the misogyny on social media so she was writing this piece in reference to clemmy hooper aka mother of daughters coming off instagram after incessant trolling from other mums her husband father of daughters sees little trolling on his account and his account is still going Robin calls this an insta-sham and she says, my husband and I are both journalists. Her husband, incidentally, is the very brilliant Stu Heritage and previous guest of the Hilo. We both write about our kids and we even have a podcast about parenting. Whenever my husband writes about parenting, he's always asked, where's the mum in all this? The assumption being that I'm the one who actually does any of the parenting. However, when I write about it, comments often take on a nastier edge, suggesting that I'm a bad parent and my kids will turn out badly. We co-parent and each of us pulls our weight, but we are nevertheless treated differently. Even when we go out separately in the real world with our children my husband is greeted with smiles when he's got our toddler on his shoulders due to the sheer novelty of seeing a dad out with his kids i'm not greeted this way because i am a mum and being out with kids is what mums do anyway there's a much larger discussion to be Mm -hmm. had actually about misogyny on social media Mm. which maybe we'll have another week 
I also loved Matthew Paris this week. Let's start a Matthew great, Paris Appreciation Club. He introduced me this week with his column in the Times to the idea of moral triumphalism. It's such a valid idea and it really connects to what you and I say often, Doll, about the liberal echo chamber, which refers to an intolerance for different moral choices. Matthew Paris was using it to describe the repeal. Incidentally, he was pro the Irish repeal. That's probably important to note, although the piece isn't really about the repeal. And he says something wider, which I think is so valid, and that is the fallacy in this idea that only the oppressed party should get a vote. It's a seam of liberal identity politics that is definitely quite prominent at the moment. For example, people saying that only women should be allowed a say on abortion. Now, I felt quite strongly that women should have a sort of larger vote on this. You know, the what could men know about carrying a child and they don't have a uterus and all of that. But that's a thought process that was immediately challenged for me by the fact that as Matthew points out, we wouldn't allow only trans people to vote on trans rights. And I certainly don't agree that Charlie Gard's parents, for example, with their heartbroken emotional bias, should rewrite the law when it came to their very sick son's care. And Matthew says that as a gay man, he has to remind himself that heterosexual people also have a say on gay rights. And it was a really interesting and vital piece, I think, for us to read, because definitely when we talk about the repeal in Ireland, we're not really thinking about why there were people who voted against us. They, for us, just sort of became these like slightly ogreish, mm. esoteric, mm. old, right-wing, you know, mad cats. Anyway, Matthew has written, that is my newspaper rustling, I am that old school. Matthew wrote a particularly interesting thing here where he said, our modern cultural creep towards an assumption that because you are rich or white or a homeowner, that your thoughts are inappropriate in the Grenfell discussion is in danger of turning inquiry into soap opera. Having those of us who are not Muslim or women or Muslim women, no business caring about female genital mutilation is the ritual slaughter of animals not to be discussed by Christians or the Christian persecution of homosexuals out of bound to agnostics or heterosexuals. That is really interesting food for thought. I, I think it's interesting food for thought. I think that it's also important to remember that the the oppressed have been silenced for a very long time. So now probably is a moment where it's not more important, but it's more pressing that we hear their voices on the subject. I don't think I don't think that's what he's saying I think what he's saying about moral triumphalism is that we have been used to oppressed people not getting a say and whilst it is really important mm. that they are now finally being able to be given a voice we need to make sure that, that doesn't tip the balance the other way well, we, we need to make sure that everyone's stories and viewpoints are listened to and I think when I said that bit about the liberal echo chamber is this idea that there's only a one right way to think mm. rather than lots of differing, differing viewpoints and I have definitely been guilty of writing off someone's view for thinking that they're just like too right wing or they just don't care enough about people we all need to be listening I agree with that and I think I've been guilty of doing that as well and actually something that I see like two things that I see as disasters in the last few years have been Trump being elected as, pre as president and Brexit happening and I think a lot of that has been people feeling like they've been patronised and silenced and ignored by people like me yeah, exactly. That's a really good point. These actions do have consequences. Yeah, we do and we need are, to listen we to are living, We are living through some consequences. Anyway, I love a new buzz term, so I am very into yeah, moral triumphalism. I listened to a brilliant TED talk this week, Dolly. You would love it. So it's from TED's new Work Life, all one word, podcast channel. And it brought together the three Me Too whistleblowers for the first time ever. So... It, so doing the podcast were Tarana Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement, Ashley Judd, the actor who broke the story about Weinstein along with Rose McGowan, and Ronan Farrow, who won a Pulitzer along with the New York Times journalist for his New Yorker investigative piece about Weinstein. It's bloody brilliant. It's really snappy and conversational and it's not stressful to listen to as mm. you would maybe imagine that a round table about this this mm. could be Tirana in particular is sensational it's been previously reported that quite understandably Tirana was concerned that her movement founded in 2006 so over a decade before it went viral or global to help survivors of 
sexual violence would suddenly become all about privileged white women and it's true me too became instantly aligned with the white actors and models that weinstein raped and assaulted and tarana basically said she has no problem with it concerning white women particularly women um who are victims of sexual crimes if we remember that not only black women are also victims of sexual crimes but also there are black sexual criminals too why she posited are we speaking so much more about weinstein than we are about bill cosby or r kelly mm. so that was an important reminder that it works sort of both ways yes with that my last recommendation for the week is the utterly brilliant Radio 4 show, Friday Night Comedy, that I discovered last week, which is a bit like an audio version of Have I Got News For You. It's both very funny, very informative, and I absolutely loved it. It's my favourite podcast in a very long time. Dolly, oh, I need a new podcast. You'd really like it. It's short and snappy and actually gives you not only a lot of laughs, but a really good news update for the week as well. <laughs> for the Hilo comes from a Google Pixel 2. Google has been built on asking questions and challenging the status quo. From search to email to maps and beyond, it has a history of challenging the norm and finding a better way. Each week, Pandora and I cast our eye over the news and look for someone who has challenged the status quo. And this week's winner is the actor Benedict Cumberbatch, who has been branded a real-life hero after jumping out of the back of an Uber to scare off four potential muggers from attacking the driver in central London. Witnesses say he shouted, leave him alone, before dragging the four potential muggers off the victim. He is decidedly level-headed about the incident. Speaking at Hay, he said, there are real-life heroes out there, and I'm not one of them. If that doesn't get him a five-star rating for life, I don't know what will. Thank you to our sponsor, Google and the Google Pixel 2, for allowing us to indulge our curiosity always. It's now time for the top line, read by Pandora. Everybody gets high, everybody gets low These are the days when anything goes Saudi women are now allowed to drive. Saudi Arabia, the only country in the world to ban women from driving, has issued 10 women with driving licences. The ban officially ends on the 24th of June and one hopes that more than 10 women will be granted with a licence, but depressingly five male and four female women's rights activists are still being held in prison awaiting trial for their work in overturning the law. Peter Stringfellow died this week after a battle with cancer. The 77-year-old King of Clubs is succeeded by his club, Stringfellows, which opened in 1980 and is one of the longest-running nightclubs in London. Miss America has dropped the swimsuit round from its inaugural competition. I've talked to tons of young women who have said to me, I'd love to be a part of that programme, but I don't want to parade around in a swimsuit, said Gretchen Carlson, a former Fox News anchor who is now the organisation's chairwoman. I get it, she said. A fire at London's iconic Mandarin Oriental Hotel saw guests and staff evacuated and over a hundred firefighters dispatched to Hyde Park this week. Guests, including Robbie Williams, climbed down external fire escapes with the fire coming just one week after the completion of the most extensive restoration in the Mandarin Oriental's 115 year history. Salad cream, one of the UK's most traditional of condiments and one that your reader really cannot stand, may be renamed sandwich cream. Its maker, Heinz, says that only 14% of those who buy the sauce uses it on salads, with many more preferring to use it in a sandwich. The number of children with autism being excluded from English schools has increased by 60% since 2011, according to new data. Figures from Ambitious About Autism, a national charity for children and young people with autism, shows that exclusions of children with autism increased by at least 44% in every part of England between 2011 and 12 and 15 and 16. Syphilis is increasing at its fastest rate since 1949, thanks to public health cuts and social media apps like Grindr. Public Health England has warned that we are facing a sexual health crisis, with gonorrhea also rising 22% and have implored men to always use condoms. The judge who handed Stanford University swimmer Brock Turner a widely criticised mere six-month sentence in 2016 for rape has been removed from office. A statement from the victim captured the national spotlight and kicked off a campaign which saw Judge Aaron Persky to become the first judge to be recalled in California since 1932. 
This is one for anyone who loved the BBC drama starring Hugh Grant and Ben Whishaw, A Very English Scandal, which concluded this week. In a panorama show of this week, Norman Scott has claimed that MP Jeremy Thorpe had no less than five murder plots against him, most of which were covered up by the establishment. In A Very English Scandal, we see Norman's dog, Rinker, shot dead in a bungled hitman job. And that was The Top Line. Everybody gets high, everybody gets low. Are you excited to watch that panorama? I am. I'm going to go and watch that tonight. God, that syphilis stat makes me glad I'm not really dating at the moment. It's really, really interesting. And um, I think it's an interesting connection with Grindr because... I don't know if I buy that. <clears throat> well, they said it's very uh, much more prevalent in the gay community. I've read that there have been loads and loads of closures of gum clinics in the last couple yeah, of years. Yeah, no, that's a huge factor. Also, I can't believe I didn't know that you don't like salad cream. Absolutely revolting. That's such a you sauce, I think. Just because it's a bit 80s and it's a bit... Pineapple and cheese on a stick. which is very much your personal brand. No, it's revolting. I much prefer balsamic vinegar. Support for the Hilo comes from our partner, Moet and Shandon. We're so excited to visit the Moet Summer House where we will be live tonight if you are... Thank you for that sound effect. If you are listening when we first come out on Friday. If you're not, we've been and gone and brought the summer house down. Come on down to the summer house in London and listen to amazing music and live performances while sipping on a Moet Ice and Moet Imperial. The Moet Summer House is open all weekend, featuring acoustic performances and DJ sets to supper clubs from renowned chefs and poetry readings. Highlights include a piece of ballet directed by world-famous ballet dancer Eric Underwood, a roast dinner with Michelin-starred Jason Atherton, a live podcast by yours truly, DJ sets by Josephine de la Baume, live music from Nick Mulvey and a pub quiz with Jack Guinness. And of course, my favourite time of day, at 5.43pm every day, everyone in the summer house will receive a complimentary glass of champagne. That time falls almost in the middle of our podcast, so... I'm quite looking forward to having a little breather, a little sichette. <laughs> Thank you very much to Moet and Shandon. It was the CFDA Fashion Awards this week in New York, which are very fancy and celeb-studded, but the news headlines are filled not with what people wore, but the host, Issa Rae's opening monologue. The 33-year-old actor who became famous with her web series, Awkward Black Girl, when joking about her lack of personal style said, you know, when I'm left to my own devices, I'm about as fashionable as Kanye is black. Only when it's convenient. You guys, that joke was my choice, just like slavery. Come on. He has a number one album. He's all right, he's all right, he's all right. This is in reference to some comments Kanye made recently about slavery no longer being a physical incarceration, but a mental choice. You hear about slavery for like 400 years, he said recently. For 400 years? That sounds like a choice, he said at the time. You were there for 400 years and it was all of you? It's like we're meant to be in prison. I like the word prison because slavery goes too direct to the idea of blacks. Prison is something that unites us as one race. So very confusing and angered a lot of people that rant. So Issa's very funny monologue. Just reference that mm. in a very spicy, sassy way. Dolly, what do you think of this spicy diss? Should Kanye be held to account like this for his comments in this very public arena? I think it's brilliant. I was re-listening to Catelyn Moran's episode of the Adam Buxton show this week. And she talks about the importance of presenting opinion um, within humour and that people are so much more likely to listen to you and absorb you mm. if you give them, she calls it a well-wrapped gift of a joke with your kind of insight and truth and information inside rather than a kind of virtuous rant. And I think it's a very valid viewpoint. What Kanye West said was potentially very damaging and very offensive to a lot of people. And I think Issa Rae's reaction was sharp and clever. I like that she caveated it immediately with, he has a number one album, he's all right, he's all right. <laughs> but do you think that his wife, Kim Kardashian West, who incidentally won the ceremony's first ever influence award, will be leaving snake emojis all over Issa's Instagram like she did when Kanye fell out with Taylor Swift? In all seriousness though, presumably it was only time before someone in the Hollywood elite, and indeed the black Hollywood elite, called out Kanye on a very public stage. Prominent black figures like the writer Roxanne Gay, the director Spike Lee, rapper 50 Cent, had all criticised him for those comments, but not in this very public, arguably very white, very mainstream industry 
way. I mean, Kanye's been making a lot of bizarre decisions recently, from multiple meetings with Trump, who he called a brother with dragon energy, although we have certainly been enjoying his tweets. As a very successful, influential black man, Kanye's comments on slavery do matter. Mm. It's worth considering what we were saying earlier about Raheem Sterling. As a successful black man, Kanye is held to greater task. But this was a black woman holding him to account, not some mad old posh white man like Piers Morgan. But then let's flip it back again. Kanye supposedly has mental problems. We keep reading that he is on the verge. His tweets do read pretty worryingly. So what do you think? There's a lot of a flip and flop back and forth quite a lot there. I mean, it's complicated, as you say, because no one quite knows the reason why Kanye is behaving the way he is at the moment. In fact, we joked about Kanye's stonery tweets a few episodes back and we did get some criticism from people saying we shouldn't be making fun of them as he might be suffering from mental health problems. All I would say is he has been tweeting anodyne sort of stoner boy tweets historically before it was speculated on that he was in the throes of a breakdown. If he is that's very sad and his family and friends and his management should be responsible enough to advise him to take some time out from the public eye and um, and take a rest. But the fact is, we, we really don't know what's going on. I think there is a world in which he also could just be a very talented, very creative person who has an underside of having some incredibly strange ideas that can be expressed very offensively. We don't know. We've also received some conspiracy theory emails that this might all be performance art for an upcoming concept album. Oh, Christ, love. I mean, I have to say, I wouldn't be downloading it from the... Uh, try before you buy taster of his behaviour I've had so far. I think I think often with um, massive egos and massive narcissists does come a thread of madness and he's definitely all of those things and that is certainly what he has in common with Trump is, is the massive ego and the narcissism and I also think it's worth remembering that we constantly herald Kanye as he is as a, as a creative a genius. genius yeah. but just because you are a genius in one area doesn't mean that you are like spectacularly smart in all areas yes agreed. I don't think very he, true he's not I wouldn't say he's politically smart because there are much better ways of expressing whatever doubt he might have had about, I don't know, the way slavery is now parlayed into modern conversation. Mm -hmm. I think that's very, very true about you can be a genius in one area and it doesn't apply to to all areas I mean, really thick of your thought. But look, look at Morrissey, you know. Yes, also back again in the conversation. Mm. When is he not? Mm. Kim and Kanye are hugely influential. Now, some people may be saddened by that fact and some people may even kind of deny that fact, you know, and say, oh, she's just like a girl on Instagram with a massive ass. But it's true. I don't just mean that they are influential in a social media sense. I mean, in a political sense, they have real power. Last yeah. week, Kim trolleyed up to Trump's desk I mean, who's next? Chris got them all going in there. And the headlines had a field day. Trump meets an even bigger arse than he is, I think was one of them. She went to discuss prison reform, specifically the case of 63-year-old Alice Johnson, who was in prison for drug trafficking. After pressure from Kim, Trump, who is famously very hardline on drug trafficking, I mean, he wants to execute drug dealers, granted Alice Johnson clemency. Now, there's no denying that that's probably got a strong link to Kim going in there and buttering him up. And this kind of nepotism is deeply worrying. Did he release Alice Johnson because he's a star fucker and Kim asked him? But it also does show how incredibly powerful Kim and Kanye are. And kudos to Kim for putting her weight behind this woman and her cause. But it also reveals the kind of influence that Kim and Kanye have beyond pop culture. Mm. They have this real political weight. You can see why Issa felt it necessary to chide, though I'm sure actually beyond the jokes she was making, she was aghast. Whether you like them or not, they are two hugely significant and powerful figures in the Western world, and they hold a huge amount of influence. So we can't just dismiss the comments as sort of mad gibberish that won't have any effect on public consciousness. The question in all of this is how much responsibility does Kanye have as a black man to the wider concept of black identity? Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote a fucking brilliant, eloquent, thought-provoking piece for The Atlantic titled I'm Not Black, I'm Kanye, where he argued that like Trump, Kanye considers himself a god in his time. 
West might plead ignorance. I don't have all the answers that a celebrity is supposed to have, he has said, but no citizen claiming such a large portion of the public square as West can be granted reprieve. The planks of Trumpism are clear. The better banning of Muslims, the improved scapegoating of Latinos, the endorsement of racist conspiracy, the denialism of science, the cheering of economic charlatans, the urging on of barbarian cops and barbarian bosses, the cheering of torture and the condemnation of whole countries. The pain of these policies is not equally distributed. Indeed, the rule of Donald Trump is predicated on the infliction of maximum misery on West's most ardent parishioners, the portions of America, the muck that made the god Kanye possible. I think that's true, and I think the point is not about whether he's allowed to have his opinion on the black experience as a black man. Of course he is. But I think it's irresponsible to then express it as gospel, particularly when he positions himself as a sort of deified authority. And that so many of the people that have built him up as this creative genius are these people that Ta-Nehisi is saying are kind of most wounded by Trumpism. When I read the Issa Rae comments, I immediately thought back to a piece by Guardian columnist Keenan Malik, written in the aftermath of Kanye's slavery comments, which gave me pause for thought. He challenges the idea that just because Kanye West is black that he should be liberal. For example, there's been much chatter about whether or not Kanye is a Trump supporter. I have a hunch that Kanye did vote Trump and I think it's probably much to Kim's chagrin because she consistently feels the need to reframe um, Kanye's comments. In a piece written last month, Keenan posits the question, are right-wing black people traitors to the cause? Many on the left have long seen right-wing black or gay people or women as traitors to the cause. There is something disturbing in this claim that there is a right way of thinking for oppressed peoples mm. and that those who dissent are committing betrayal. It may be comforting to imagine that if black people are being reactionary, then they are not really black or at least they are attempting to escape being black by espousing white ideas of freedom. But is it really less reactionary to imagine that ideas come colour-coded than it is to claim that slavery was a choice? Or is it any more progressive to insist that West is not black because he backs Donald Trump than it is to see Trump as a brother? I once read that apparently the way humans react to those on their side who they feel have deviated from their collective doctrine is much greater than how they react to the people who vehemently oppose their views so apparently psychologically speaking a vegan would be far more likely to feel something much greater and more affecting if a fellow vegan drank a glass of milk than they would a person who ate a happy meal every day and this is not obviously to compare veganism and blackness obviously but I do think it's interesting that we feel a great sense of damage collectively when someone we thought was mm. on the side of our cause or by dint of their ethnicity or class or background or gender we believe should be on the side of our cause isn't and how powerful that seems to be on a human brain. Issa has frustratingly been silent on Twitter about this, though she did tweet a link to an article about what she wore to the CFDAs. All her outfits were made for her by black designers. Now, people say clothes can't make a difference. Time's up where all the actors wore black, for example. Well, I'm sorry, but that packs a punch. She put not her money where her mouth is, but her wardrobe. She used her vast platform in hosting that awards in the most visual way she could. And it was a platform. She was the first ever black person to host the CFDAs. I mean, that's shocking. Mm. But it also means she is someone worth listening to. Issa, the world is listening. And please come host the British Fashion Awards. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Points 
yourself a Cosmo, pull out your tutu, and with it, your best sexually charged and clumsy innuendo. Sex in the City is 20 years old this week, and of course, we had to talk about it. I'm so excited I might put Kipsy in my pants. I'm so, so happy that this anniversary has fallen exactly at this moment in popular culture, because I feel like Sex in the City really fell out of favour for a while. I think it was probably off the back of that absolutely hideous second film, which I think did the past stories and characters and resounding message of the show a disservice, actually, and made it seem very two-dimensional and culturally insensitive and sort of tawdry and really rooted in capitalism and capitalism Mm. only. And Sex and the City became shorthand for something very basic and predictable and thoughtless, really. But the truth is, and I'm very happy to admit this now, Sex and the City was a very thoughtful and at times... I think quite radical show. It's shaped how we talk about sex, it's shaped the dating landscape, it's shaped how we perceive female sexuality, and I'm glad that we're having a moment to recognise that. I wonder if it's because the teenage millennial girls that grew up with that show are now heading into the same age bracket that the characters were in those first series. That's interesting. So perhaps the stories have taken on a new meaning or kind of profundity with age for us. It feels like people are recognising... Uh, and focusing on the good that it did rather than the things that it got wrong or it missed out. God, I adored Sex and the City. It reminds me of being 17 every time I watched it. Mm. I wanted to go clubbing in bed. I wanted to meet every (laughs) Sunday for mimosas. I wanted to keep shoes in my oven and conversely wear pearls on the Upper East Side. I wanted it all. We still can do all those things if you want. I'm a willing participant. I did wear some fake pearls this week and I thought, dear God. (laughs) And yes, I'm glad the tide's turned. I'm really bored of reading about how Carrie is actually Satan. The woman was just a bit selfish and she let a man named John woo her back with a walk-in wardrobe for Christ's sake. She hardly burnt down the Western world. And also how Sex and the City isn't politically correct. No, it wouldn't be made now because it's no longer revolutionary. Different shows are revolutionary now. Fleabag, Blackish, Atlanta, Handmaid's Tale. Mm. It's a bit like when people say, oh, friends would never get made now. There aren't any non white central characters, fat monikers, and abomination. The way Chandler's father is discussed is disgusting. No, of course it wouldn't get made now, and for good reason. Sarah Jessica Parker herself said recently there were no women of colour and there were no substantial conversations about the LGBTQ community, she said, admitting that if she made the show now, then it would be different. So I think we have to acknowledge all that and not hold it up to a completely different time that we are now in because I think it would actually be a completely different show. Mm. That said, there's a very funny and brilliant um, meme called hashtag woke Charlotte created by the Instagram account every outfit on sex in the city. So when Samantha calls her neighbourhood trendy by day and tranny by night, woke Charlotte responds, the correct term is trans and trans workers deserve respect. After all, they're not the ones who are gentrifying the neighbourhood. Please check your cisgender privilege, Samantha. And to a sexist comment by her first husband, Trey, woke Charlotte replies, I strongly encourage you to examine how sexist belief systems about the role of women have impacted your inability to get it up. I love Woke Charlotte. I think a lot of this celebration actually is down to the Every Outfit on Sex in the City Instagram yeah. account, which I'm sure all our listeners uh, will already know about. But if you don't, it's a really, really intelligent and funny Instagram profile uh, dissecting the outfits, but more widely the tropes and the characters and the topics of Sex in the City, as well as the 90s, the noughties and New York and its culture during that time. And actually, they've just officially teamed up with Cynthia Nixon to do some Miranda-themed merch for her New York mayoral campaign. Yes, for anyone that is not familiar, Miranda from Sex and the City is running to be mayor in New York. I am hugely influenced by Carrie Bradshaw in my sartorial life. I and many women I know regularly look down and think, hmm, quite Carrie today. Slingbacks, bustiers, slip dresses. Though, whilst I admire her for basically inventing the concept of ghosting via Burger's post-it note breakup, I wholeheartedly disagree with her dismissal of scrunchies. And as a freelance journalist, I do remain sad that she has completely ruined the opener I got to thinking. There's been a lot of really brilliant commentary around the anniversary. I enjoyed Elena Nicolaou's piece for Refinery29, which presents the theory that it was a show about the power of conversation and analysis. She says... Sex in the City paved the way for an entire genre of urban-set, women-led shows in which women could discuss everything from rent payments, as seen in Broad City, to vagina facials, as seen in Insecure, to questionable life decisions, as seen in Girls. 
More significantly, the show's revolutionary frankness created gateways for real women to speak openly about topics that were once considered too embarrassing or too personal, like rabbit vibrators or the concept of sluttiness. Eventually, conversation between women about the most intimate topics would lead to a watershed reckoning about sexual harassment. For all its blindness regarding social issues and its datedness regarding lifestyles, this is a show that takes the romantic lives of women seriously and does so through conversation. Just as talking with friends will never get old, neither will sex in the city. Absolutely. And actually, it was doing something much more like politically powerful than Friends or Cheers. Mm. Although I suppose you could say that Friends was the first show that showed single 20-somethings living in New York before, in the media, they were shown to live at home and then get married. There was mm. no interim period. Mm, that urban family. So maybe there's actually, a, you know, a sort of interesting political moment to be found in even the most digestible. Mm. I've never thought about Sex in the City uh, in, in the framework of conversation, but I think it's a, a really valid point. Yeah. There is obviously action in more ways than one. Am I right, ladies? That's a nice <laughs> Samantha Jones pun for you there. Um, but really, it is a show about talking. Even when you think about the job that Carrie has and the voiceover that guides it, it's about being thoughtful and analytical about sexuality and love. Quite Dolly Alderton, that, being thoughtful and analytical about sexuality and love. Thank you very much. That is such a powerful and, I think, feminist premise for a show where the bulk of that analysis is in the hands of female discussion. Ideas are the things that change the world and basically this was a show that really honed in on how four female brains worked and expressed themselves and interacted and differed and united. And I think that's really cool. And also, talking about something honestly is fundamental to an anti-shame movement and that's what sex in the city was it had an anti-slut shaming soul before the term was even coined still arguing that there hasn't been a sex positive role model on our screens better than samantha jones yeah i mean that's a poster girl for anti-slut shaming isn't it i also read this hot take on jezebel by katie mcdonough that i loved big was never hot and his eyebrows and hair got weirder as the seasons progressed like someone was drawing them on with a marker Aidan was only kind of hot, but his body was very big, like a giant's body. <laughs> I forget who Charlotte dated. The hottest one was Steve, a compact man who also dressed cool, had nice glasses, and spoke with a sweet little voice. He only got hotter as the series went on, and remains hot now in real life. Congratulations to Steve. <laughs> what were your thoughts on the men of Sex in the City? I'm not entirely sure I'm down with her analysis of Aidan's body i think that bit could have been left out and she could have still made her point well dolly as miranda once said before donning her bright blue beanie why does it always have to be about men give me a call when it's about something else i love that bit anyway i fancied keith actually the most played by vince vaughn can't believe you remember the character's name big was quite sexy aiden in his leather thong necklace turquoise ring and deliberately sort of ponderous pre-evolutionary Y-front clad like lumber that he did I found much less attractive Steve absolutely did not find sexy but clearly quite sexual I actually found their taste in men except a bit of Big and perhaps Smith completely insane but I liked how open they were to meeting people these women really inhaled New York and all it had to offer including its men and it felt very freeing to buttoned up little me Unsurprisingly, I have some very strong opinions on this. As Pandora and uh, all my closest friends know, I have a very, very strong proclivity for extremely narcissistic and extremely self-obsessed men. Which means that if any of them are listening to it, they'll get in touch because they're so narcissistic, they'll want you to know that they heard you talking about them. <laughs> exactly, that's a good test. Um, yeah, and apparently this is a proclivity that's not going to exit the building without a fight, even as I approach 30. Um, and I've always wondered where this habit came from. And the more that I watch sex in the city and the more that I got to thinking um, I think I picked it up from watching it at such a young age because I absolutely fantasised about and romanticised Carrie and Big and now when I look at it I see what a completely unbalanced and infantile and damaging relationship that was I do not think he's sexy and I do not think he's a good boyfriend and I think it's all smoke and mirrors I think he takes no real interest in her or her life or her friends and I think he's rude and he's pretentious and he's not very funny and I don't think he's very kind and I also think he's quite cringy so basically I entirely blame my problems in relationships uh, on Sex and the City and the fact that I, I idealised that sort of man and that sort of relationship from about the age of 14. It's not very millennial of you to blame uh, all of your problems on a... <laughs> I think it seems quite plausible. On a, on a series? 
I think she should have uh, ended up with Aidan, actually. Oh, God, we're back here, are we? I know, it's a controversial opinion. Perhaps my most controversial on the high list. He was too wet. Do you think he was? Mm -hmm. I thought he was so sexy and manly and he could build things and he fixed things and he had the lovely dog. He could have built himself a wooden boat and paddled along a stream of his own tears. (laughs) Oh, my God, Pandora. That was like such a Joan Rivers put down from you. I loved him. I liked that he had his own friends. I loved his beautiful little house that was upstate in the country. And he was so tall. In fact, I've never met a man that tall. I Men that are talking that... from personal bias here. <laughs> Men that tall don't exist. And if they do, they only ever go for really short women like Carrie Bradshaw. I have no idea why she uh, didn't marry Aidan when he asked her to. And he was going to make her apartment so lovely as well. Do you remember he was going to do that nice extension? Yeah, sure. Think of what a good man he'd be to uh, to have grown old with and what a good dad he would have been. I think I'm very overly invested in Aidan, actually. A lifetime spent looking at this sort of slightly creepy man who was always rubbing his thumbnail over his lip. <laughs> Oof, no. But I am completely obsessed with the fact that in uh, real life he's currently in a long-term relationship with Bo Derek. Oh, that's cool. What were your standout moments from Sex and the City? What were the scenes or the sort of messages from the show that you really remember or you always kind of carry with you? Charlotte realising that happy ever afters don't exist, at least not how she Mm. imagined. Um, Charlotte and Harry struggling to have a biological baby and then adopting a Chinese baby. I will forever remember the moment when she looks at the photograph and she starts crying these really squeaky tears. Goosebumps. Miranda and Magda, perhaps the greatest unsung relationship in the entire show. Actually, as well, Miranda was Steve's mother Mm. when she finds her kind of barefoot on the street eating a piece of pizza that that caretaking role oh, incredibly um, emotional I found it so moving that moment when when Magda brushes the hair away from Miranda Carrie marrying herself and registering at Manolo Blahnik after that really patronising friend says why should we support your extravagant lifestyle Carrie admitting to Samantha that she's still been sleeping with Big and she goes don't you want to judge me Samantha goes not my style. Oh, I love Samantha's the best one. Samantha breaking up with the dream boyfriend, Smith, because I love you, but I love me more. That actually is still fucking revolutionary. To throw away this man, this seemingly perfect man, to be on your own. And also when she has sex after having gone through cancer and she Mm. just sings. I could go on and on. It's actually as moving as it is funny, that show. It's interesting that you should say that because I asked the Hilo's Twitter followers what their favourite scenes and moments were and what kind of life lessons they've learnt from the show. And I was expecting it to be all those kind of iconic, fun, silly, flippant, sexy bits. And most of them actually were were moments that people were very moved by. At SG Phil said that scene where Carrie goes to Big's apartment before he leaves for Napa, he puts on Moon River and they dance, it always makes me cry. It's so romantic, that scene. There you go, falling for Big again. I know. See, it's literally got under my skin. I blame that show for everything. At Ain Jane, Miranda will always be inspirational to me. I was young when I watched it first, and although so much of the show is about needing the validation of male attention, her career success and independence, especially when it came to Steve and having the baby, was a great role model. I think that's very true. Mm -hmm. Juno Dawson said, Charlotte's lovely cunt in the first season was (laughs) jaw-dropping and really set the bar for how daring the show could be at its best. Ivan Avello said, My favourite was Charlotte getting engaged to Harry, accepting that happiness in life might not look like what you grew up working towards or what others expected of you. Yes, rejecting Mm. Trey, who was seemingly perfect for Mm. Harry and his hairy back and his bald pate. Mm. Yeah, I think that's pretty meaningful. And at Soph Wilkinson said that bit when Miranda eats the whole cookie that says I love you. I don't know what lesson I learnt, but it's really good. Thanks, Sophie. (laughs) I wonder if Miranda was the most interesting character of all. Another just quick favourite bit is when she's pregnant and she pulls her own finger and farts. (laughs) Happy birthday to Sex and the City. Oh, happy birthday, darling. I think it's safe to say we loved you in your infancy. We love you at 20 and we will love you at any age. It's now time for Ask the Hilo. Dear Pandora and Dolly, I'm an idiot, an utter idiot, idiot, idiot. Last weekend, I met a boy at All Points East. We danced, laughed, and he spun me around, but I allowed myself to get pulled away and then chickened out of going back to dance with him. It probably would have ended up being nothing. I live in Amsterdam, this guy lived in London, but I have been 
regretting it deeply ever since. I've tried searching this guy out on social media, but I was slightly under the influence when I met him, and the details I remember are foggy to say the least. He was tall, wearing a grey t-shirt, glasses, had a British accent, was in his mid to late 20s, early 30s, maybe, and his name started with a Z, something like Zulcher, Zodar, or Zando. I've spent an embarrassing amount of time scrolling through all the pictures tagged with All Points East. Oh, my darling, I've been there. Where we were dancing on Instagram and searching Facebook. What I'm really looking for is advice on how I can get rid of this deep feeling of regret that's been hanging over me since then and doesn't seem to be budging anytime soon. Regards, unlucky in lust. I'm riveted that you think you might be called Zulcher. <laughs> Your names are interesting. I like as well, his name started with a Z. And you don't go for like Zach, you go for Zulcher. First, I was like, my God, you know, she lives in Amsterdam and he lives in London, but she wants to maybe get in touch and maybe they can have a long distance relationship. And then it's a bit like, how can I get rid of this deep feeling of regret? I, I just think you had probably a big weekend. You could have passed someone you didn't pass. And you haven't got anything else to think about at the moment. I, I genuinely think in like three weeks, you'll be like, God. Did I dance with a man named Zulcher? I, 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 I wouldn't worry about it too much. I think it's one of life's really annoying near misses. Although sometimes they're quite good near misses because otherwise it could be a tale of when you went to London and you had sex with a terrible man named Zulcher. <laughs> I thought it was really important to read out this uh, email because I spent such a huge amount of my 20s completely obsessing over men that I feel I had near misses with or kind of going out for a treasure hunt of like where are all these beautiful zulchers hiding and actually I think it's a really dangerous um, attitude to have and I'm not judging you at all because as I said I have fallen foul of it for many years and I feel like only out the other side of my 20s have I realised that I don't need to think of men like this there is not a scarcity of men. And I think when you start feeling that men are scarce and you have to chase them, and when you find one, you have to grab him. Even if he's called Zulcher and lives in London. <laughs> it's just, it will make you a mad woman. And it's, it's, it's just not true. There are so many people out there. And just let them kind of fly by. You know, there was this one guy that I met at a festival when I was 25. And I became so obsessed with the fact that I was like, going to marry him that even up until like like last year I would still sometimes go on his Instagram to see what he was up to and I don't know anything about no, him it's that's completely imagined you can romanticize fleeting moments because there's no inconvenient backstory you can paint them however way you want yeah Zulcher could live in a beautiful loft and be VP of some really socially conscious startup that was also simultaneously earning enough money to take you to Mauritius three times a year. Zulcher can be whoever you fucking exactly. want. Exactly. So therein lies therein lies the appeal of, totally. of Zulcher. There'll be a Zulcher in Amsterdam, and maybe he'll be even better than Zulcher. Can you tell I'm obsessed with the fact that you think you might be called Zulcher? But also, what Pandora is saying, which I think is so true, is you're not craving who you th- you're not craving Zulcher, you're not craving Zulcher. what you're craving is like a moment of escapism from your life and like that's totally fine I get it we've all been there you know I'm a romantic as I say I do it all the time but see it for what it is and love it for what see it is see what it is and find it funny like there is not a scarcity of good men out there I promise even though I know sometimes it feels like that thank you so much for listening to the Hilo you can rate review and subscribe on iTunes which helps other people to find us and also boosts us in the charts you can email us show at gmail.com or tweet us at show. bye 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 Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.